3: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. It's 40 years since the World Championship moved to the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield. And I've gathered the big guns of Snooker Scene, the editor Clive Everton and chief reporter Phil Yates to reminisce. So 40 years of the Crucible, but of course uh, the World Championship was going a long time before then, started in 1927. And into the 70s, Clive had various venues and I think they illustrated the need for a permanent venue, which of course became the Crucible. Well they
1: certainly did. Uh, the 1972 final for instance, the first time that Alex Higgins won it, was played in Sully Park British Legion and the, the tier seating was very primitive, upturned beer crates, that kind of thing, uh, completely inadequate toilet facilities, completely inadequate lighting, completely inadequate everything <laughs> really, <laughs> but uh, uh, we were all transfixed by the play. Um, and uh, particularly that, that of Higgins, and uh, at least it did serve one well useful purpose and it, it attracted outside interest, and the 73 World Championship was at least professionally promoted at city exhibition halls in Manchester, and then Bellevue 74, uh, Eddie Charlton promoted the 75 Championship, which was shambolic in its own way, <laughs> uh, uh, 76 was split between two venues, Middlesbrough and Withenshaw Forum, which was a complete shambles. <laughs> uh, and then in '77, mercifully, we went to the Crucible. Mm.
3: So, first year there, um, I mean, everyone always says, even now, oh, it's so small, I can't believe how small it was. It was only just big enough, wasn't it, to actually get the two tables in? Uh,
1: in- indeed. I-, I think it was only a matter of a couple of feet. Um, mm. uh, but... Uh, Thank, good- thank goodness it, it was it was just big enough. Um, in '77, of course, the television only started at the semi-final stage, so uh, Ted Lowe did, did the whole the whole of the, uh, the commentary. '78, uh, they went to covering the whole of the championship on both tables, recording every ball of every of every frame, um, and, of course, the rest we know.
0: Mm.
3: And, Phil, you, you were a callow youth in, in those days, but you, you went to watch. I went to
0: watch. I went to <coughs> Silly Park British Legion for one session in 72, um, when I was very young. Um, one session, obviously, of the, of, of the final, because it wasn't a tournament. went in 73, 74, and then I went again in 77, uh, saw John Spencer play a match, and then 78 onwards. But my first crucible actually working uh, there as a journalist was 1989, and I thought it was very, very easy, because... I drove back with Clive after
3: the final when Steve Davis beat John Parrott 18-3 and it was still light. <laughs> yes, yes, well, it had not happened since. But, um, so, the f- so the first year you went and spectated it, because as you said you'd been before, did you feel, it's easy to sort of romanticise about the Crucible, but did you feel actually there is something special about this venue? Very much so, yes. I've been to the Masters at uh, Wembley
0: as well um, not before the the, the the first Crucible I went to, obviously, but I, I I went to the Masters around that time, and Wembley was fantastic. But the Crucible was it definitely got a unique atmosphere. To be honest, because I hadn't got a great frame of reference, it didn't seem to me to be particularly small. Mm. Um, but on one occasion, I also remember sitting behind uh, Graham Miles's chair when he was playing Perry Mans, and Mans were knocking them in off the off the lampshades, and I was pretty much having a conversation with Graham and myself and a couple of other people, you know, between frames. And it just seemed so intimate then Mm. because, you know, it was one of those things where the crowd could get so close. The actual size of the venue never really dawned on me. But the closeness the crowd
3: got to the table, that was extraordinary. I mean, nothing like it anywhere else. Mm. It's a bit different for me because I grew up watching The Crucible. And um, the first time I went there was 1990 uh, and I did sort of, think, wow, this is just ridiculously small. The first match I saw was John Virgo against Gary Wilkinson, but, but it didn't put me off a c- career in snooker. Um, so, of the early days, obviously, it, it was sort of it was on TV on Pop Black and with highlights here and there, but it was nowhere near as big as it became. So, what was the sort of press contingent like? I imagine it was pretty small, probably you and a couple of others.
1: Well, to, to start mm. with, yes, uh, myself and Janice Hale, who, who, who was assistant editor of the Snooker, scene, very regrettably died last year, we were we were the press corps, mm. but uh, we, we gradually acquired a, a, a few more. In fact, uh, when Snooker got into the, into the 80s, pretty much, every uh, national newspaper had its own correspondent, few of whom knew anything about snooker.
3: <laughs> and, and many of whom liked to drink, because of course that was the thing people maybe don't understand. In the days of sort of embassy, there was a free bar in the press room, and obviously cigarettes were handed out like candy. It was uh, kind of stuff that just c- kind of couldn't happen now. It was the Sodom and Gomorrah of the fourth estate, wasn't it? (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, it was extraordinary, really. I mean, I remember going home uh, from the embassy championships back to your hotel room. And then the next morning you, you, you get your word bag where you've got your, your pads and your research and all that kind of stuff. And I absolutely stunk of smoke. It was extraordinary. You didn't realise it at the time, but the following morning you certainly did. Oh, yeah, the press were looked after royally. And Clive's right. I mean, when I started my first championship in 89, every single newspaper, they got their own snooker correspondent, And uh, it was a really big deal uh, in, in the national press. Um, and now our viewing figures are fantastic mm. still. And yet... You hardly get a word in the papers.
3: Maybe they should bring back the free bar. <laughs> so, I mean, this is hard to hard to say really. But when did the Crucible sort of become the Crucible, as it were? When was it the case that, that people thought, okay, we actually can't leave here? Was it when into the eighties when it became so big on TV? I,
1: I think I think it was it was it was pretty early in the piece, really. I, I remember thinking, even in seventy seven, the first year, I thought, this is marvelous. This is this is ideal uh, for snooker. Uh, so, I, 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 think, I think pretty early on, the Crucible had a special
0: and mm. Phil, would you, you concur? Absolutely. I mean, I agree with the vast majority of decisions that Barry Hearn makes, and I'm absolutely with him in the sense that he needs to keep Snooker at the Crucible. Obviously, it's got commercial disadvantages because you're limited to the number of people you can get in there. Certainly in terms of hospitality, you're limited. But the game hasn't got a great amount of history, you know and
3: what you have got you need to preserve Absolutely, well we'll, we'll put, touch on some of the, I mean there'll be a lot of talk in the 40th anniversary of some of the great moments but, um, but there were a lot of great moments and one of them was uh, 1983, Cliff Thorburn made his 147 but of course that match ended up being the latest ever finish, he played Terry Griffiths and long, long after the maximum there they were battling away until the early hours, nine minutes to four, Clive, and you you can claim to have been there. You were there to the bitter end.
1: I I, I was indeed, (laughs) and and I went to the press conference afterwards Mm. as well and saw um, the sunrise over Sheffield, which Mm. is... uh, uh, a distinction few can claim
3: Absolutely but so so what was it like in the arena because TV had stopped didn't it you know the camera they couldn't afford to pay the cameraman anymore so there was no coverage so it must have been quite a sort of eerie atmosphere
1: e- extremely eerie mm. but, but what was amazing was that at least at least 100 people uh, remained in, in in the arena oh, presumably people with their own transport because <laughs> because
3: the, the buses and trains mm. had long since running mm. And, and, and what, were, what were the players like in terms of the standard of play at the end? I mean, those, those two were hard men, we know that, Cliff and Terry. But ultimately, it's nearly four in the morning.
1: Made no difference right. to the standard of play, yeah. none whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Thorburn, who, who in, in his days playing for money, travelling across all, all the way across Canada and North America... He would play 24, even 36 hours. I think he, sometimes he, he took something stronger than coffee, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he was used
3: to it. Yeah. 85, of course, we, we must touch on. I mean, You almost feel like there's nothing left to say about that. But one, one person who I think is worth mentioning is David Vine, who I think had a horrible task at the end of it, because those arena interviews, they can be quite awkward anyway, but Steve Davis, one of the great champions, was always going to be a bad loser. It's very hard to know what. What do you say? (laughs) Well, Varney was a giant. Let's face it, Um,
0: professionally, phenomenal. And before that, he elicited one of the great quotes of the Crucible when Terry Griffiths joyously said, "I'm in the final now." You know, that was a, a great moment. And then, of course, '85 came across, and putting myself in in Varney's shoes, he must have been a little worried as to how Steve was going to react. In fact, he reacted wonderfully, didn't he? By saying it was all there in mm. black and white. But yeah, it wasn't just the players who made the Crucible. People like David Vine, Clive, and others who were involved in the in the television. That's what made it. Mm.
3: It wasn't just the players. So, what was it like for you? Because you were a league player and obviously a Stoker fan. When you started working there, you sort of walk into this into this world. What, what was that like?
0: I was. Well, I shed a tear the first day, actually, I couldn't, I couldn't quite believe it, I, I, because it was only just after my father had died, and he loved it, and he'd take me to the crucible, and I couldn't quite believe that I was actually there working, and I know I know he would have been extremely proud, um, so that, that, was, that was great for me, but then you sort of become, you, you switch off, you, be, you stop being a fan, and you become um, a journalist, and there is obviously a, a, a very big difference, and then you just get on with it. The first year, as I say, I hadn't got that much on, you know, I was very much a junior, and it was just sort of feeling my way in but sort of four or five years in when we got the Radio 5 contract I mean those 17 days the (laughs) hardest I've ever worked in my life for about 10 years in the middle there I just don't know how to do it. In fact, my last few Crucibles, I worked so hard that my back went. And,
3: you know, at the end, I was sort of, I was was just in bits. Um, But that's the thing also. I mean, it was pre-internet so in in those early days. So you had to phone the people, young people maybe don't understand this, but you had to phone the copy and you had to read your story over the phone, which took a long time. Well, Clive, you'll tell the story about (laughs) Sally Park in 72 when you used a public phone. Well, uh, yes. Uh, that it, was
0: definitely pre-internet. Uh, <laughs> w-
1: well, and w- what's more, it was a public fair without a light initiative, <laughs> which, was, which was not good for evening sessions. Yes.
0: Uh, my, so my worst Crucible memory actually wasn't at the Crucible, when Peter Francisco was, was banned uh, for what he did at the Crucible uh, against Jimmy White. Um, they had the, the hearing at um, Manchester Airport in a hotel there, And Sky News wanted me to ring them and tell them what had happened on air as soon as the verdict came. And obviously, Peter Francisco was banned, so it was a big story. So I've gone into this um, telephone booth, again um, pre-mobiles, when the story broke. And I'm live on with, I think it was Chris Scudder. And uh, I'm, I'm starting... You can't to, be
3: here today, but yeah, anyway, yeah, I started, I, we'll take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I,
0: I, 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 I was live am I and I was starting to my spiel, and it's quite a, a sensitive thing, you don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'm, I'm starting to my spiel, and all of a sudden this woman knocked on the door, how long are you going to be in that booth? <laughs> <laughs> I need the phone! You know, and I was live on so... Yeah, so the, the, the facilities were quite, quite rudimentary in many respects, and the worst of the lot was when the WPBSA, and their great wisdom decided to only book the phone lines for 17 days. So the actual book uh, the, the booking finished yeah. at midnight yeah. on the night of the final, <laughs> and of course the final finished well after that, so we were all, we were all scrambling to yeah. get
3: our copy over with no internet. But you mentioned Francisco, and, and I guess, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of controversies in snooker, but when they happen at the World Championship, they are multiplied, aren't they? They have become like the biggest thing ever. And of course, you were both there when Alex Higgins retired, in inverted commas, in 1990. What was that like? I mean, we should say before he sat down with the press conference, he assaulted an official. I was the only
0: one in the press that saw it. Basically, yeah. I've always been a worrier and a fretter and I was on deadline, and. I kept looking, where, where is he, where is he? You know, I needed the quotes, basically. And everyone, as you know, in that, in that very small mm-hmm. interview room where you've got breeze blocks and all that kind <clears> of stuff, <throat> everyone's looking forward to the plinth at the top. Everyone was looking that way. So I'm sort of, where is he, where is he? And just as I looked round, he walked in, and Colin Randall, who was one of the nicest guys you could ever wish to meet, the press officer at the time, went, come on, Alex, you know. And he's gone whack in the stomach. And then walked straight in. Mm-hmm. So none of the other guys see it, you know. So then he starts his press conference, which is infamous. Yes. So I come out of the press conference straight on the phone. Alex Higgins faces a lengthy banner after assaulting uh, the press officer. Bob. And one of the other guys heard me and he said, what do you mean? And, I said, no, and he couldn't believe that he hadn't seen it but, uh, because it was right there. As if the
3: press conference itself wasn't enough. Exactly. It was that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And, of course, I guess, Clive, that attracted a lot of news reporters to the, to the crucible as well. What was it like, the sort of relationship between people who were there to come with a snooker and People who were there to cover the agro. Well, uh, it
1: was it was it was okay, it was okay really. Um, I think that the um, the, the snooker journalists recognised that the news journalists had got a job to do, and, and in many cases they ha- they helped them.
3: Mm. In terms of commentary, obviously, you know, there were long days. You would normally do sort of two sessions a day, do you, and and also you were doing the radio in between. You were doing the garden in between. I mean, they, like Phil said, there were long days and there were 17 days of it as well uh, uh,
1: Looking back, I, I can't think how I, however <laughs> I did it uh, I, I, I did, as you say two sessions of of, 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 of commentary um, we had the Radio 5 contract as well, which was on the hour every hour uh, and if I was in the box uh, Phil did it, and on top of that two stories for The Guardian, mm. one for first edition and one a rewrite last thing at night, which was, which was delightful at that
3: hour. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because the journalists, uh, like most people when the play stops, they just go. But the journalists, it's still the same now. They're there for another hour, maybe an hour and a half, do, doing their work. Well, we, we were talking about this uh, quite recently during the World
0: Grand Prix at Preston Guildhall. I remember a UK championship there where myself and Trevor Baxter had quite a few orders to do at, at the end of play. And we went to leave the uh, the press room and we were locked in. <laughs> Locked in, they thought, yeah. you know, they didn't realise anyone was in there. It was probably yeah, an hour and a half after play, maybe even two hours after play had finished. Mm-hmm. You never got there at the Crucible, but yeah, some really late nights there. And you woke up some mornings, you think, as Clive's just said, how do I get through this?
3: But mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow you always did. Yeah, but also, it was, and it, it's kind of the same now, but specifically then, I think, sort of pre-internet as well, it was a complete bubble away from anything else that was happening in the world, kind of wasn't happening, was it? You were mm. just sort of it was lock, locked in sort of syndrome in a way. You were just there and it was snooker every day, all day. Yeah, that's right, yeah, and it, something
0: big in the world always seemed to happen when we were there, I don't know, I mean, maybe it was just, you know, your, your sense of, of news is sort of heightened by, by where you are and what you're doing, but yeah, it was tumultuous times, and I must be honest, people say because obviously, you know, I'm not involved to that extent now, and people say, do you miss it? And, and I can genuinely say honestly, I miss being at the Crucible yeah, of course I do, I miss seeing the games, but I don't miss the workload, that was just a bit too much
3: <laughs> Yeah, because there's a lot of pressure to actually obviously deliver stories, get it right and when you're doing lots of things, there's not time actually to sort of perfect your prose, is there? You've just got to sort of bash it out
1: Well I, re- I remember very frequently uh, I didn't have time to actually write uh, uh, something for the, for the Guardian I just scribbled a few notes and, and ad-libbed it over yeah. the phone to to uh, uh, A delightful or not so delightful copy taker. Mm.
3: The 1980s obviously were dominated by Steve Davis, and the 1990s by Stephen Hendry, and it was a surprise if they didn't at least get to the final and and usually win it. Now it's much more open. You know, you can make a case for lots of different players because there's so many tournaments, a lot of people that are sharp, and there's there's no real one obvious favourite. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan will be favourite, but he's not the favourite to the extent that Davis and Hendry were. Was it better then when there was like one guy to be shot at, or is it better now that it's kind of basically there for the taking?
1: I think it's better now. Mm. Uh, more, more variables.
0: Um, simply that. Historically, I think individual sports have tended to boom when there's a, a dominant figure, or two or three dominant figures. Certainly, tennis is a, a classic example of the two or three, maybe four. With golf, golf definitely boomed. With Palmer, then Nicholas, and particularly with Tiger Woods. And snooker undoubtedly boomed with Davis and then Hendry. But it's booking the trend now. It's so open, it's more open than it's ever been. We were talking over breakfast this morning actually about who would win the World Championship. And there are so many candidates. I actually said on a commentary recently that I think nowadays there are more than 16 top 16 players, if you know what I mean. There are 25 who are legitimate top 16 players. I wouldn't say there are twenty-five realistic contenders for the world title, but certainly it goes
3: well into double figures, and we've never had that before. Oh. What was uh, what was because uh, we look at Steve Davis now and he's sort of this this obviously legend of the game and, and very chilled out on the BBC and so on. What was he like as a person in his prime? Because a lot of other players said you, that he would just basically not speak to them and not, not associate himself with them and keep them apart Was that was that how he sort of got to the top?
1: Well, actually, Steve used to spend a, a, a lot of time in the press room mm. in, in, his, in his off moments. The understanding was that we, we didn't ask him anything about snooker. Mm. But uh, he was very affable on other subjects, mm. playing chess with someone. or uh, he, 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 was, he was quite sociable, but you
0: didn't talk about snooker. Right. At the World Grand Prix last month, I'm in the commentary box with Stephen Hendry. He sees up in the back row two players, Joe Perry and someone else, who were playing each other the next day, I think it was. You don't do that. I wouldn't do that. In my, you know, he would keep a mile away from the yeah. guy he was playing. Yeah, Absolutely.
3: Well, that's the thing. I mean, injuries come in the press room as well. I think one of the reasons was you go in the players' room. It's not so much the other players; it's their guests. They want pictures. They want autographs. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be in his mindset, prepared for the match, and coming into the press room, spending time with journalists he's been with all season, so he can trust them. It's mm. actually a little refuge. Yeah. And, of course,
0: the opposite of that was Mark Williams, mm. who, before he won his second world title, literally before he went out, was sharing a joke with us. What? Literally, they called him, and he said, "Hold on, I'm just going to give you the bun-. He told us the punchline, then off he went and played the final. Mm. You know, so each to their own. But definitely, there's been a lot of interaction between players and and the press, and I think it's it's rather unique. I think the bond we've got is one we should be proud of. Mm. We should, except there
1: isn't quite enough press now to have interaction with. We need a few more.
3: Well, well, let's talk about the way the media's changed, because obviously the press coverage has, has fallen away dramatically, actually. Um, people get excited about the World Championship. But I mean, if anyone's been to the Crucible, they'll see that, like, the press cuttings on the wall. They used to sort of snake down the corridor, didn't they, and back again. Mm. But now, there's quite a few, but it's nowhere near what it was what, what are the reasons for that is it, is it because football's taken over so much is it just that the media have just lost interest in snooker for whatever reason
1: I think it's cultural snobbery right. on, 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 the part of, on the part of the media uh, which is made worse by the fact that budgets have been cut at all sports departments and they look well what can we do without oh yes I know snooker hmm.
0: but the amount of press coverage on snooker when I say press coverage I mean mainstream newspaper coverage is the worst of any sport in relation to the viewing figures it gets, I mean you know from personal experience Eurosport's doing fantastically well myself and Clive know that ITV the the viewing figures are up and they're really really delighted, we know BBC is producing great figures as well and yet the, the newspaper coverage does not reflect that in the slightest, now that's their
3: loss not ours yeah. some of the people who come now uh, it's more international I think now and there was a guy there I'm not sure where he was from but it was his first time at the Crucible last year and Alan McManus was just sat at the front just having a cup of coffee minding his own business and he came in this guy and he said actually sorry I was out there so okay no problem so Alan moved to the seat next, next door and this guy said to him clearly was not necessarily a big snooker man because he said to him, who are you writing for? <laughs> and Alan had to sort of explain, well I'm actually you know, I, I'm, I'm playing in the tournament. He could have said by the way I've been in two semi-finals here before but he, he didn't. But, but I think that we've seen how a lot of Chinese press come over, so it's become a little more international but there's still that concern that the British media don't sort of understand what a big deal this tournament is. I remember when the Thailand came over and
0: someone said it's going to snow today and he went, when? He thought we could tell by the minute when he was going to come in yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, I mean, the, the Chinese media and the stuff they write on each match it's like literally a ball-by-ball commentary it's yeah. a, we, we used to think, you know, a thousand-word piece was sort of really hard work I mean, they're probably writing ten thousand words It's extraordinary and, and the interest isn't just in Ding and Liang and the other Chinese players it's in the, in the championship as a whole mm talking about China there's all this talk over these years about building a replica crucible Um, and you know great good luck to them if they build one fantastic but there's a parallel in golf you know there's a place called Tour 18 uh, at two or three locations in the United States where they basically recreate famous holes from each golf course the 12th and Augusta things like that and yeah it's great but not the same,
3: never will be the same and nothing will ever uh, replicate the Crucible No, because in China the the, the talk is Jason Ferguson showed me sort of the the plans for it uh, but it's like the Crucible in terms of dimensions but it's in another building whereas obviously the Crucible is a theatre just in the centre of Sheffield and for 50 weeks of the year that's what it is it's a very successful, well regarded theatre it's become a sporting venue because that's where it was taken but like you say, you couldn't couldn't replicate it because culturally it's not the same, is it? No, I think I think it would be very,
0: very very difficult. And the other thing with with China is that if you took the World Championship there, they would have to offer an immense amount of money to uh, basically compensate for the loss of the British television contract mm-hmm. because with an eight-hour time difference, if you played the final at night there, which you obviously would, it would be in the middle of the day, mm-hmm. and
3: you know the viewing figures would be plummeting, you know, mm-hmm. through through the through the fall. Let's talk about embassy because, uh, of course, smoking now is is frowned upon to say the least. But uh, back in the day, you know, they they poured a lot of money into the game, and they were very supportive sponsors. And there was this character Peter Dyke, who who was their sort of consultant, uh, who, who worked for them, who kind of kept everyone in shape, didn't he, Clive? <laughs> very,
1: very, very smart man. Mm. Sharp as a tack, business-wise, knew exactly what was right in terms of uh, uh, Embassy's uh, involvement with, with Snooker, how to sort of maximise exposure and all that. But also a, a, a very funny man. Mm. He, 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 you know, very, very good socially, you know. So uh, he he was the ideal frontman for Embassy, Mm.
3: and uh, it's fitting in a way. The last Embassy was won by Sean Murphy because it kind of proved that sort of life goes on, I guess, beyond you know uh, making a big change. And you were commentating on that last session when he when he beat Matthew Stevens, and they had the the parade of champions before, and that must must have been pretty special.
1: Yeah, it it. when you see that many champions, you, you, you realise how long you've been doing this.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Phil, talk. About, I mean, because you, you weren't a commentator during the World Championship, so you spent literally all day in the press room, and the, the, the sort of, that's a recipe for madness unless you have a bit of a laugh. And there were a lot of characters in that press room, weren't there? Oh, we had so many laughs, so many. I mean, of course, the World Championship when
0: it came was normally, if there was a general election, the general election was coming up, and so we had quite a few politicians coming out. I know you had to show, um, I think it was William Hague, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, one point around there. It was
3: me, William Hague, Rex Williams and Lord Archer. There's there's a quartet. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, and I remember
0: Jeff Hoon coming up on, on, on one occasion, and of course the former, I think he was the Labour Defence Minister, wasn't he? And he was... Shown around the press room. I met him and shook hands and all that kind of stuff. And then over in the other uh, portion of the room was John Dee, the former Daily Telegraph uh, correspondent and and a good friend of ours. We'd just been to China and he got one of these really big furry Chairman Mao hats with a massive red star on the front. (laughs) (laughs) And he was introduced to Jeff Hoon and... uh, the guy who was showing Jeff around said uh, uh, Mr. Hoon this is uh, John D. from the Daily Telegraph and he turned around with this massive red star <laughs> on the front of his hat <laughs> Jeff Hoon shook hands and he turned around Well, he went if the guy from the Daily Telegraph wearing that we should be okay <laughs> 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 that, was a, that was a great moment another time of course when I went into the arena to see um, Nick Clegg, Nick Clegg yeah. uh, give a, a pre-general election speech Turn, turned out it was the, the general election where the Liberal Democrats went into uh, coalition with the Conservatives mm. and I'm thinking well Nick Clegg you know a uh, Sheffield M P, he's going to be given a very warm yeah, reception <laughs> oh, it, 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 was,
3: it, wasn't, it wasn't warm no. oh, no. no. I mean, though quite a few sort of celebrities have come they all seem to sit in the press seats even though they're not journalists which, which kind of was, always rankled a bit
0: Yeah, well, I've sat next to uh, Stephen Fry
3: yeah. members of various boy bands who I didn't know yeah. I had to move for Westlife and it wasn't even Westlife it was one of Westlife and three of his pals they said oh no Westlife are coming you're going to have to move Westlife,
0: dog's life <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> The, one of the nice guys that comes up on a regular basis uh, is Hugh Edwards. Hugh, um, Hugh Edwards. Are called, Hugh, Hugh Edwards, yeah? Hugh Edwards are from from BBC, um, and he's a uh, confirmed uh, John Higgins fan. Mm. Mm.
3: Clive, you uh, you were celebrated a few years ago. 500 days. Someone worked out for some reason that you would spent 500 days of your life at the Crucible, mm-hmm. and you got to go out into the arena and, and take the take the applause. What was that like?
1: Very nice. Mm. It, it, nice to be recognised. Uh, of course, it's quite. Uh, it gives you gives you quite a shock when you realise you've spent more than a year of your life in uh, a single place. You know, it, albeit sort of split up year by year. But uh, yeah, it was very nice.
3: And then inevitably, a few days later, you, you, you slipped in the bathroom and, and, oh. and had to miss a day.
1: <laughs> well, 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 that, that, that was that was that was terrible. Mm.
3: Uh, but I seem to remember because you rang Phil, and, and even even then you, you, you couldn't sort of keep away from the snooker aspect because you said you'd done a Hendry, because of course Hendry famously broke his broke his elbow doing the same thing.
1: Well, well, that, that's right. I I, bro- I broke my my hip, mm. and uh, uh, that's why I've got a hip replacement.
0: Yeah. Well, when Hendry broke the elbow, I actually very kindly, because of uh, a member of Hendry's team, ended up breaking the story on Radio Five because he he, he told me, and well, look, I'm not going to any wool over anyone's eyes I'm a massive Henry fan and I was devastated I thought that was it he was playing Dave Harold. he was 7-1 up in the last 16 but even 7-1 I'm thinking well he's not going to win with a broken arm and if he does he ain't going to go any farther and he came in he was so ginger, gingerly queuing in the first frame of the day and he lost it I thought oh no this is terrible how unfortunate Next frame, he had 130-plus, yeah. and then he went on to win the event. It was one of the great achievements, not just in snooker, in my opinion, but in sport. Mm. Fantastic, because he was definitely handicapped, clock mm. Yeah,
1: and particularly bridging, bridging over a ball, putting weight on the, uh, the, the, the arm that got the injury. Uh, it, 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 was ter- it was terrific, really, and it was very nice, and at the end, he, he avoided any possibility of... Uh, colluding in any suggestion that he'd beaten Jimmy White in the final with a broken arm mm, mm.
3: P- people can't see this because we're not on video but Phil is, is, Phil is jealously guarding Chris Downers' Crucible Ammonet which is an incredible tone which celebrates the World Championship, actually pre-Crucible which, particularly the Crucible with all sorts of statistics and it illustrates nearly 200 players have played there but some of them Phil you can tell virtually from the start of the match basically for whatever reason that venue they just cannot cut it there the worst ever was 1993, and the reason for that was they played the
0: qualifiers, God only knows why, in the September the year before... Nearer to the
3: previous World Championship.
0: Nearer to the previous World Championship at the Norbreck Castle Hotel in Blackpool. And because it was towards the end of the, the summer when the qualifiers were played, because a lot of players were rusty, because these young guys had been playing a lot of uh, matches at the Norbreck, a lot of shock results occurred, and you've got people getting to the Crucible who... Had never been there before, and were never there again. And what happened was, by the end of the season, when everyone was in groove in terms of the top players, it was just one heavy defeat after the next. year some extraordinary people have played at the Crucible, and as you say, you just knew, you just knew they weren't
3: going to win. Yeah, because it's everyone's dream to play there, but because they're such long matches it can very quickly turn into a nightmare. You go 4-0 down and you can see them just sort of basically disappearing into their chair. And it's such a... That's the other thing about the World Championship. It's such an awkward environment when you're sat next to the other player, really close to them. You don't get that at any other tournament. I I think the one...
0: I've seen heavier defeats in the Crucible. (coughs) Obviously, John Parrott defeated Eddie Charlton 10-0, the the only whitewash there still. uh, We've seen 10-1s, 13-1s, all that kind of stuff. But in terms of just shrinking and not being able to produce, because he was a good player... The one that always sticks in my mind, and I'm sure it does in yours as well, um, is Gary Ponting from Bristol when he played Willie Thorne that time. I think he was 10-2, and he was just so nervous. He was just so overawed by the venue. That's the one that sticks in my mind as as being a a terrible one for a Crucible rookie.
3: Mm. Okay. well, we're going to wrap up shortly, but I'm going to put you both on the spot with two questions, Okay? which I've not pre-warned you on. The first one is, for all the years at the Crucible, 40 years, a personal highlight, so it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a match, but it can be something that happened there. And the second one is going to be, and I, want one, I don't want a long list, I want one name, who's going to win it this year. So first of all, a personal highlight,
0: Phil. Well, okay, the personal highlight for me is the Brown that Stephen Hendry potted uh-huh. uh, to basically launch his 10-frame comeback against Jimmy White. He was 14-8 down. His bridge hand was horrible um, in the middle pocket. The only way he could possibly get on the blue was playing the brown off its spot a dead weight into the yellow bag. It was the greatest shot I've ever seen in my life, and not only was it the greatest single shot, it was what it led to. Um, that comeback, for me, was the greatest achievement of anybody at the Crucible, because it wasn't just a, a tight match, it was the the whole sort of environment around it. Everybody, well not everybody, but the vast majority wanted Jimmy to win. And Hendry was just so stubborn. The crowd were against him. He understood that, you know, White was the big favourite. And yet he won those 10 frames and made century after century and played brilliantly. Clive?
1: The 2003 semi-finals, the final session, when uh, Paul Hunter started it, leading 15-9, and Ken Doherty. Just clawed back and clawed back and beat him 17-16. For sustained tension, that was the match for me.
3: Okay, I think for me it was literally just getting to commentate at the Crucible uh, for the first time. I did the final in 2013 when Ronnie beat Barry Hawkins, uh, which was a great match. But just to actually be doing it was was just incredible. Okay, and and I want one name. Who's going to win it? And we're recording this in m- early March, so. Obviously, there's going to be tournaments running into the championship, but Phil, who's going to win it? Jud Trump. Okay, you're very, very definite about that, weren't you? I just think <laughs> when he when he plays his best, he's
0: fantastic, and he's played a lot of really good matches this year, where he's come up against opponents who've been extra special, and that's why he's lost. I think Trump, because he doesn't take very much out of himself mm. when he plays he plays so aggressively and so freely that a, a, a whole succession of lengthy matches, he's not drained by it not like you know, former winners such as say Graham Dott or especially Peter Ebden mm.
1: Well I think Trump uh, as well because uh, he's got the game for, for long matches he, he, uh, he can relax in the early stage of a long match and just play, play his game mm. without worrying too much about the result at that stage Failing Trump, I just got half a feeling that O'Sullivan, who's had Apache a season, might just get it all together. Mm.
3: I agree with what you say about Trump. The only thing against him, I think, is that he knows that he's been expected to win it for a long time, since he was be- even before a professional. And he has that pressure that other people have had Jimmy White famously and others. We shall see. I personally think, Mark Selby, you know, that there's no... I was was saying to Mark the other day, there's no curse of a second-time winner. You know, the old Crucible curse for the first time. winner doesn't apply when he won it twice. He's at the top of the draw. And uh, it's noticeable he's won the two biggest ranking events of the season, the International Championship and the UK Championship. We shall see. I did say it was the last question. There's one more, actually, because last year it was announced that there's a new 10-year deal for Sheffield. Is it right that it stays at the Crucible? Absolutely
0: no doubt in my mind. As I said before, you know, commercially it's not the right place for the game. Uh, they could make a tonne more money elsewhere. I mean, we remember when it went out to tender all those years yeah. ago and Liverpool put in a fantastic uh, financial bid which would have helped the game in terms of a, a monetary improvement. But that's the spiritual home of the Championship and I would hate to see it leave.
1: The World Championship and the Crucible are synonymous mm.
3: OK, well, well, we'll regather it then in 10 years' time to discuss 50 years. And, and it's good news for Chris Downer, because, of course, if, if it moved from the Crucible, the cru- Crucible Almanac will become obsolete, basically.
0: Well, the Flying <laughs> lenders have got a safety net, we're on the high wire. Our safety net, we're in that commentary box, Dave, yeah. is the Crucible Almanac by Chris Downer. He's one of the great heroes of the game. Available from snooker scene.
3: <laughs> well said. OK, well, on that, on that, uh, on that grossly commercial note, we'll, uh, we'll say goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>